Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring the 1970s, remembering the 1970s, and I'm pleased once again to be with my dear old friend, Saul Paul Sirag, with whom I shared many adventures back in that decade and in subsequent decades as, as well. Saul Paul is the author of Adex Theory, how the ADE coxeter graphs unify mathematics and physics. He was also mentioned extensively in the fascinating book by David Kaiser, a historian of science at MIT, called How the Hippies Saved Physics. In addition, he has written a chapter, an appendix actually, in my book, The Roots of Consciousness, in the second edition published in 1993. Uh, and that appendix is called Consciousness, a Hyperspace View. And now I'll switch over to the YouTube channel and we'll continue with my friend Saul Paul Sirag. Well, welcome, Saul Paul. Uh, once again, pleasure to be with you. Let's uh, let's begin with uh, the day we met, which, as I recall, was on my birthday in 1971, uh, at a time when I was um, living at a, a house in Berkeley. The university had funded, and I was the director of a program there called the Health Information Program. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and how I got to your birthday party, uh, you didn't know me and I didn't know you. So how, why was I attending your birthday party? <laughs> well, I, as uh, I recall, there was a fellow named Art Rosenblum who, who came with you, who yes. I didn't know him either. Yeah, Art Rosenblum w lived in Philadelphia. And uh, in, starting in uh, in uh September of 1971, I was writing a series of of uh, newspaper articles that I called the New Alchemy on various topics of uh, basically new things in science that I thought related to the old claims of alchemy. That's why I called it the New Alchemy. And these uh, were for a company called a brand new company in Berkeley called Alternative Features Services that was started by a couple of friends of mine. And uh, I was paid $15 a week for these columns. And uh, and they were distributed all over the country in uh, college newspapers and underground hippie-type newspapers. And he, he had been reading... Um, in Philadelphia, um, my articles, and he he had come to Berkeley to interview various people, uh, including me. He he called me up. He got he got my number from the Alternative Feature Services uh, headquarters. Their their small, very very tiny uh, office, uh, and he called me up and 
and wanted to meet me. Uh, and so I said, well, where should I meet you? And, and he said, well, I'm going to be going to a birthday party to meet a woman that he was interested in who lived in Berkeley. And she was going to be at the party and he was going to meet up with her. Um, and that's how I got to <laughs> birthday party, in that very roundabout way. That's uh, funny. Yeah, because I, I remember he had written a book, as I recall, or maybe it was a like a comic book called Weird Science. Yes, that's correct. Uh huh. I think I have that somewhere. <laughs> and, and all the things like I have a huge collection of the stuff from the 60s and 70s and later, you know, um, among all my books and papers and so on. I mean, it's a treasure trove of stuff from that period, of course. <laughs> Well, my recollection is that that evening you and I had a conversation about LSD because you had uh, some ideas as to how LSD impacted the the brain, and I was fascinated. Yes, in particular, I had I had written one of my columns. Uh, might have been one of more, one of the most recent columns I had written about. About that, and in particular, I was fascinated by the fact that uh, I had read in uh, the scientific journals that uh, that the pineal gland uh, actually um, made the psychedelic uh, molecules, and people were speculating. I, th I think more recently than that, actually, it's been found that the pineal gland makes DMT. Mm. Uh, but uh, at that time, they were talking about such things as harmaline. Um, and these, are, these things are very related to serotonin. And one of the ideas uh, in the psychedelic uh, literature at that time was that probably um, the serotonin receptors uh, in the brain uh, – Serotonin is a very important uh, neurotransmitter, and and that LSD is so close to being serotonin that it probably is being taken up by these serotonin receptors in the brain. And I think that has turned out over the years to, to be vi a viable idea about LSD. But anyway, that's something I discussed with you at the party. Yeah. And you were you – were, uh, somewhat skeptical about the pineal gland thing because you mentioned the pineal gland and I said, oh, I know a lot about the pineal gland. I can tell you some interesting things. So then I, I and I gave you some references to look up yeah. mm -hmm. and and you did and decided that, oh, well, that, that guy uh, knew something interesting. And then we didn't meet up again until a few months later when um, – there was a, a UFO lecture on the Berkeley campus um, by um, Stanton Friedman. Stanton Friedman, yes, who yes. was a very prominent UFO investigator, still is, I guess. Uh, and uh, he gave he gave a talk about uh, why UFOs were for real, all the all the evidence that he knew at that time, and there was a lot. Uh, and there was a kind of an after-lecture meeting of those who wanted to ask more questions. Uh, and you and I were in this after-lecture meeting, and we saw each other across the room. And um, and then we, you know, talked to each other. And I remember um, 
we went over to your apartment on um, Grove Street at that time. Grove Street is now uh, MLK Boulevard, I guess, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard. Uh, but it was Grove Street at that time. Um, and, and you know, we, we talked some more in your apartment. <laughs> well, as I recall, it was shortly after that that... Uh, I was enrolled in school at the time. You you were not. I was a graduate student in criminology, but a number of graduate students um, who I knew were interested in consciousness. Ken Pelletier, Angela Longo, and uh, so a group of graduate students began meeting to discuss the problem of consciousness. And at one of those occasions. Ken Pelletier announced that he had a relationship with this cosmologist from the East Coast, Arthur M. Young, who would be coming out to Berkeley and offering a special seminar just for these students, and I invited you to attend. Yes, Jeffrey, I remember that you told me about it, and you thought it might be interesting material for my column, actually, uh and I did. I did write about it in my column, and I, I attended these lectures. It was like a weekend thing, I believe. It was, it yeah. was like Saturday and Sunday, you mm-hmm. know, back to back. Um, and this was in uh, the spring of 1972, so it was not too long after we met up again for the second time. And uh, one of the things I remember very, very strongly that it, is that well, you and I both uh, asked a lot of interesting questions, uh, and, and uh, so Arthur took an interest in us. And they, Arthur and Ruth, his wife, invited invited me to lunch with them on someplace on on Shattuck Avenue, um, which was not too far from from the psychology uh, building, which was Tolman Hall, which is where the um, where Ken Pelletier was a graduate student and where the seminar was being held. And I remember distinctly, I have a very, very distinct um, memory of crossing, um, I guess it's Oxford Street uh, along the west, uh, west side of the campus, uh, and Arthur Young telling me at that point about Uri Geller. Mm. This is the time I heard about Uri Geller, actually, uh, and the fact that he was being in, in, uh, studied at, at Stanford uh, Research Institute. And uh, that really fascinated me. Uh, and then they were talking about, he and Ken Pelletier especially, were talking about setting up an institute in Berkeley. Um, this was in the spring of '73, and that institute basically was founded that summer. And you, Jeffrey, and I were the first two invited to actually live at the institute. And uh, Arthur and Ruth had a an apartment in uh, in in the institute building on Benvenue Avenue, which they bought uh, a very nice building for the. For their purposes, they have very a huge front room that, that that you know was where the all the teaching happened uh, yeah. the, for the large groups, and then there was a smaller room called the library room, which which was for smaller classes, uh, and and we lived upstairs actually, mm-hmm. basically a converted attic, uh, right. 
They were they were tiny rooms, but they were sufficient for us. So uh, we got we moved into the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in the summer of 1973. Yeah, in August, I, as I remember. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. I moved in sooner, and you moved in a little later because you were married, and you were actually you broke up with your wife in order to move into the institute. Well, actually, I had, yeah. Well, uh, the situation with my wife was very complex. Um, I was living on Adeline Street in a big apartment on Adeline Street with with my wife, uh, who I was still married to, and her boyfriend, okay, yeah. who were, who, uh, Seth, uh, who she later married, um, and also um, with Nancy Royston, who was, um, who was an artist friend of mine that I'd met in New York that when I was um, working in theater in New York in the 60s, 66 to 69, and Nancy kind of followed me out to California and she had she was in New York she already I introduced her to Leslie she was a good friend of Leslie's and uh so there was it was a foursome actually Leslie was your wife Leslie was my wife Nancy was my girlfriend (laughs) and Seth was my wife's boyfriend the four of us this is Oh, Berkeley in um, around 1970-71, you know. But you, uh, you, left the, you left them all. I left them all, yeah. Uh, but I kept in touch with them. Though. Yeah. I'm, I'm aware of that, of course. Nancy, Nancy is also the one, you probably know this too, that introduced me to uh, Mary Min, who, is, who, is, uh, who I married in 1991, and we're still mm-hmm. living together in Eugene. So she was an important link. Nancy, uh, this artist, um, was an important link between Mary Min and me, too. What, what, uh, what so I, it, it's complicated, let's say. What I particularly remember about Nancy is that uh, long before microdosing of LSD was, became popular, she, she used to do it. She was taking a little bit of LSD every single day, as I recall. Yes, and she and she and she painted. That's how she did a lot of her paintings. I have, I have much of her artwork in my house, and and in particular, the painting that she painted in that apartment at the time. You know that that this foursome was going on, and she, her room was right next to my room. Mm-hmm. Her room was was basically a studio sized room, and I had a tiny closet sized room. But I would go and visit her. While she was painting, and and it's a it's an incredibly beautiful painting uh, that I have, uh, you know, hanging on the wall of our, of our house right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and w- we have a lot of paintings in our house because Mary Min is a painter, and Mary Min's mother was a painter. So you know, uh, we have lots of paintings. Yeah. We have some of Leslie's artwork too. Leslie was an artist also, mm-hmm. among other. Okay. So I, I guess, the, you know, an interesting uh, episode, really, that's, that's worth going into some detail on is our relationship with Arthur Young. Yes. At, mm-hmm. at the Institute. I know he had a, a big impact on you and the development of your own theories, but he had a theory of his own as well. 
Yes, and his his theory he published uh, in, in two books, basically, um, called The Reflexive Universe and The Geometry of Meaning. Um, and uh, very detailed um, idea about how everything fits together in some grand design, you know, including including uh, the biological realm and and the uh, the chemical realm and the particle realm. And the, actually, the the highest realm in in his view was was the light actually mm-hmm. and everything according to his cosmology everything comes from um, a very very high energy photon at the beginning of the universe um, and uh, interestingly enough the second level which is supposed to deal with um, particle physics um, in other words between light and uh, mole- chemical molecules uh, it's of course the molecules are made up of electrons and protons and things. Um, so, so that uh, uh, in the book uh, and elsewhere um, has has simply says work in progress. Yeah. The, the reason it says work in progress is because Arthur and I couldn't agree on <laughs> what to put there. I had proposed uh, some elaborate quark. Um, idea for that that seemed to fit his uh, his scheme, his seven level scheme, but he didn't he didn't like the idea of the existence of quarks. Even he was very skeptical about the existence of quarks at that time. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe never got, never got his head around yeah. uh, the existence of quarks, even though the, the see at this time in 1970. 73 was was when the quark model was sort of you know really being accepted mm-hmm. by the physics community but it was still controversial one would say in 73 uh and uh but that's another story how, well, you know, he, how he, part of physics advances he did like uh, hyperspace, and he didn't like the idea, if, as I recall, of a, a multiplicity of new subatomic particles uh, being That's found. True. Yeah, yeah, and the problem was that uh, the Berkeley accelerator, the Bevatron, was was discovering new ato- subatomic particles uh, almost weekly at that time uh, in the early seventies, uh, and. Um, and other, there were other part of big particle accelerators all over the world. Uh, well, in Russia and and on the East Coast and at Stanford, there was the there was the uh, linear accelerator. And in 1974, a, a new subatomic particle was discovered um, uh, called uh, it, it was a, it was a type of quark. It was called charm. Okay, and that was the big deal in 1974, the charmed quark. Yeah. Which I predicted uh, previously, uh, and uh, so uh, so it was discovered in 1974 at the Stanford Linear Accelerator, and that was a big boost to the quark theory, actually, of uh, subatomic particles. Uh, like the proton is supposed to be made up of three quarks, two up quarks and a down quark, and the neutron is supposed to be made up of of uh, 
the opposite. In other words, two down quarks and one up quark. But then there are other levels of other types of quarks. The, the strange quark uh, and the charm quark, uh, <laughs> which are like the up and down in many, in, in many ways. Uh, so it's called the second the second generation or the second family of quarks. And then there's a third family that was discovered later. So the, and the idea that I'm getting across here is that the quark theory was very much a work in progress. So, mm-hmm. so Arthur, you know, was, was in a way uh, right to be cautious about it, but uh, he just rejected it and rejected a, a lot of these new ideas like the charmed quark um, out of hand. Uh, and I thought that was uh, not a, a great idea. And of course, uh, we can look back now from the perspective of decades and, know that it's quite well accepted at this point oh absolutely it's it's uh it's it's called the standard model mm-hmm. uh, of particle physics is the th- three families of quarks uh and other and other par- other t- particles um uh, and yeah so so it's so accepted it's called the standard model mm-hmm. in physics but he had developed his his cosmology earlier and and to a large degree it was based on earlier science and i i think he had a hard time uh making that adjustment because uh it meant maybe his models wouldn't work so well yeah yeah quite likely yeah um but later later on you know back in the i I was i was at the institute until the fall of 1977 and um, and then later on in the 80s, uh, when I was living in San Francisco, um, involved with Henry Dakin's uh, Washington Research Institute, um, I had I had become very interested in a in a certain algebraic structure called E7, and I thought, oh, Arthur should be interested in E7 because there's that magic seven, you know, and. So I visited Arthur, and one of the first things that Arthur said to me is, you know, I've become interested in E7. <laughs> and I said, oh, Arthur, you know, I can tell you a whole lot about E7 because I've been studying it. And then Arthur didn't want didn't to hear what I had to say about it. I think he was afraid that I would scoop him or something. I don't know. But it was strange because uh, I could have I could have really told him a lot about E7, um, and actually you know it's it, it's an example of a Lie algebra, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I recall that the first time I ever heard the word Lie algebra was was when a mathematician, a graduate student at Berkeley, was visiting Arthur, and <coughs> and. Uh, you know they were they were discussing um, basically Arthur's Arthur's idea of the real real numbers and and Arthur didn't Arthur b- didn't believe that uh, real numbers really existed in some Platonic sense that only only fractions existed um, oh. and they were arguing about this uh, and and I asked him well w- well what are you working on um, you know, as a graduate student, he says, well, I'm working on Lie algebras. That's the first time I heard the word. And I mm-hmm. said, well, what's that? And all he said was, 
Well, that's something that starts out being one thing and it ends up being something else. But that didn't tell me much about the algebras. So, of course, I went to uh, went to Moe's bookstore in Berkeley and started reading up on Lee algebras, which turned out to be very important mm-hmm. uh, in my own work. Um, as I pointed out, E7 is a particular Lee algebra mm-hmm. and, and Lee group, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd heard about Lee groups before, but not Lee algebras. Strangely, although they're incredibly closely related. And and when the student said you start with one thing and it turns into something else, uh, the Lie algebra, therefore, I'm assuming, is about uh, how you transform one object into uh, uh, a different appearing object while maintaining a, a certain features of its identity. Perhaps that's what he meant. It's, it was kind of a mysterious statement. I should have pushed him more, but I didn't want to interrupt, you know, his discussion with Arthur too much. But mm-hmm. well, I, but it just put a a bee in my bonnet about I've got to check up on this stuff, you know. Yeah. And that's that's the way I was learning. I was, mm-hmm. you know, Arthur Arthur would challenge me with um, with mathematical type puzzles to work on um, and. In 1974, early 1974, he asked me to to work out the uh, symmetry structure of of a tetrahedron. So, and that's how I I got into uh, working on the octahedral group, mm-hmm. which is full symmetry of of the tetrahedron. Uh, if if you rotate the tetrahedron only, then then you get a, a subgroup. Uh, Called the tetrahedral group, of course, um, but if you also allow uh, reflections of the tetrahedron, then you get the full octahedral group. Um, and the octahedral group is simply the group of all the permutations of four things, and you know, the four the, the four vertices of the tetrahedron permuted will mm-hmm. give you the tetra the octahedral group, um, and I worked that I worked that out literally by by manipulating a tetrahedron that Arthur gave me uh-huh. to work. I still have that tetrahedron uh, that Arthur gave me to to work out from the object itself. Mm-hmm. The uh, Arthur was a very hands-on kind of guy. He was an inventor, after all. He did he had invented uh, a very fundamental aspect of the Bell helicopter, the rotor system, and. Um, it's one of his main claims to fame before he got in, you know, got interested in, in um, well, he'd already all, all, always been interested in metaphysics uh, and the, the paranormal and so on. And as soon as the Bell helicopter uh, started being manufactured in 1947 and 48, he left Bell to work on what he was more interested in, which he called the the psi, the copter. Yeah. <laughs> so, but in effect, it was metaphysics. It was metaphysics, and it was, well, it was more than metaphysics. It was also he, uh, a great interest in the experiments, mm-hmm. uh, like the ones being done with Uri Geller uh, and other people, uh, investigating paranormal phenomena in general. He was very interested in that. Um, and he financed <laughs> some of that uh, early work. Hmm? He financed some of that early work. He financed a lot of that work, uh, and he also traveled around and visited visited people uh, all over the country, uh, maybe in other places like Australia, maybe. But 
mainly the U.S. and he called it his G whiz period. When he mm-hmm. would, he would um, any anything uh, strange that people were claiming, he would go and investigate. He would he yeah. would in, he would talk to the people who were doing it and decide for himself whether it had legs, whether there was anything to it, or whether you know. And yeah. and, and uh, so he met a, an awful lot of people who were doing interesting things and. And, uh, you know, this influenced his his view of reality and his, uh, you know, uh, his cosmology. Um, so he called of universe. Mm-hmm. He was a cosmologist. He had invented the Bell helicopter. He was knowledgeable in many, many different areas of science. But he also became an astrologer and a proponent of radionics and uh, a few other strange things, a deep, deep student of ufology. Yes, he would, he would talk about the saucers from time to time with me, you know, and he, you know, he really, he he really thought they were for real. And I, and I, and I agree with him that, that there's something real going on there. Mm -hmm. Not every report is for real, but uh, there's enough, there's enough reality there that we need to pay attention to it, certainly. And Arthur, um, Arthur certainly influenced me. Although, you know, I had I had first heard about uh, flying saucers going all the way back to when I was in the fourth grade mm-hmm. near Philadelphia, because my fourth grade teacher, every time she read about um, flying saucers in the newspaper. Would read the story to the class, this fourth grade class, <laughs> and I I met up with her years later, in the sixties, and one of the first things she she said to me, she talked to me about was flying saucers. She was still <laughs> she lived to be a hundred years old, by the way. Fascinating. Uh, when Arthur was talking about UFOs, then of course my mind went all the way back to the fourth grade where I first started hearing about flying saucers and. This was in, I was in the fourth grade from uh, 1948 to 49, and uh, at, at that time, um, newspapers were publishing everything uh, like that. They, they started not publishing these stories later on, but in the 40s, in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, there were a lot of stories about mm-hmm. UFOs in the newspapers. Well, and, uh, you know, it's ironic because when I was in the fourth grade, uh, much later than, than that, this would have, since I'm younger than you, it would have been in the mid-50s, but it was the fourth grade, I began reading UFO books myself from the public library, and I even wrote a letter to Donald Menzel, who was a professor of astronomy at Harvard University, who had written... Yeah, a, he, was, a, he was a debunker. He was yeah. a debunker. Uh-huh. And um, one of the one of them, you know, one of the most important debunkers because of his position as an astronomer mm-hmm. at uh, University of Harvard University, after all. So um, I, I wrote him a letter and he wrote back to me when I was in the fourth grade. You were in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did he did he debunk your um, the, the things <laughs> yeah. you were he did indeed. He he wanted to make sure I understood that UFOs did not exist. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, so we both had this fourth grade experience, <laughs> which I didn't know about before, and you didn't know about. No, but, but it really is, our friendship was sort of solidified when we met uh, at the UFO uh, presentation of Stanton Friedman. That's right, that's right. And then, and then, and then when we were with Arthur, it was, uh, you know, we heard a lot more about UFOs from and, Arthur and his, and his friends, other people. Mm -hmm. And like, Jacques Vallée came to the Institute and gave a talk about UFOs, for instance. That's right, uh, yep. While we and, were living there, and I interviewed him uh, for KPFA radio at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, also, it's probably worth mentioning that, um, oh, of course. Uh, you Well, you developed a relationship with Jack Sarfati uh, back in those years. Yeah, Jack Sarfati actually um, showed up at the Institute on his birthday, mm -hmm. the 14th of, of uh, September, which was two, year, two weeks after my birthday. We're almost the same age. Uh, we were both born in 1939. Um, and he had been invited to, uh, to look me up at the Institute by Arthur back in Philadelphia. Arthur... Arthur was not at the institute in the summer. He, 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 and Ruth were in residence at the institute for two months in the fall uh, and then two months in the spring, um, when there were um, events that that were at the institute um, scheduled events, mm -hmm. uh, like speakers, like uh, we just mentioned. Um, Jacques Vallée speaking, but many there were many many other very interesting speakers at uh, the Institute for the Study of Consciousness. Anyway, um, so Jacques Sarfati uh, told me almost right away about his ex his strange experience of the telephone call when he was like maybe twelve or thirteen years old and in New York, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. where he grew up, uh, and, and, um, the telephone call to him sounded, sounded like, uh, some kind of, uh, machine speaking, uh, and it, and it said, if you go to, if you go to the fire escape and look out, uh, we can pick you up. <laughs> he did not go to the fire escape. Well, he did. Was he ran down to the street and told his buddies about about it, and um, nothing happened. But here's the interesting thing about that story: is that is that um, in in nineteen uh, in nineteen seventy four, um, Andrea Puharich's book about Uri Geller, the book called Uri. Uh, came out and um, and of course there are a lot of stories in there about um, about extraterrestrial contact um, with with Buharich and Geller uh, mainly in Israel I believe but mm -hmm. um, anyway um, there was also stories about uh, strange mechanical voices uh, which were on uh, tapes that 
you know, uh, claimed that uh, these ETs that were in contact um, were from something called Spectra and so on. Um, and Jack uh, w was given that uh, that book by Puharich when he in New York um, in in '74 and uh, and uh, Jack's mother was still living in New York and he he took it over. He was visiting his mother um, and he gave her the book to read. And he didn't even read it himself. He just handed it over to his mother. And his mother started reading it and came across the part of the book that talks about the, the strange um, messages. Uh, and she said, Jack, you know, this happened to you. This happened to you way back when. And there was a whole week of these calls. And Jack had remembered only one, mm -hmm. interestingly enough. Uh, and she said that the calls kept coming and, and eventually she she uh, grabbed the phone out of Jack's hand and said, you stop bothering my boy. Yeah. <laughs> like a Jewish mother would, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Jack to this day doesn't remember, doesn't remember those other phone calls, just that mm -hmm. one. Uh-huh. Which is strange, of course, but his mother remembers them. Well, uh, and it was about that time when I also uh, sponsored a, a symposium in the Berkeley campus, and Andrea Puharich came and talked about his relationship with Uri Geller. And uh, a few months later, I brought Uri Geller to his first major live public appearance in the United States, which was on the Berkeley campus. And uh, you then had a, a subsequent adventure with Geller. Yeah, it's a result of, of uh, my contact with Geller that was um, largely due to Jeffrey's uh, sponsorship of, uh, of a conference of, uh, of several people. Uh, uh, Puharich was just one of the speakers, but he spent his whole talk um, talking about Geller. And so, uh, so I wanted to, um, to do more, you know, research on Geller and go to New York and everything. And, and luckily, uh, there was a there was an editor at Esquire magazine who had been reading my columns, uh, my my um, New Alchemy, New Alchemy columns. Yeah, and he he called me up and uh, and said that he wanted me to, to write an, uh, a big article for Esquire magazine about all the latest research on on the brain neuroscience uh and i said well you know i'd love to do that but but first i want to i want to um go to new york and and uh, meet with with geller and puharich and investigate that story for you and he and he authorized me to do that and and wrote me a letter mm -hmm. authorizing me to do that and so when um when puharich uh, came out uh, the second time um, with Geller uh, to do when when Geller um, did many many interesting things uh, on on the Berkeley campus. We can go into that if you want. But uh, anyway, so so I got to go to New York uh, in the spring of 1973 and.
and meet with Puharich and Geller and had a lot of interesting interesting things happen. I, and I wrote up uh, the article for Esquire. It was a very long article. And um, Esquire turned it down because they said that Actually, actually, my editor loved it, and he he basically accepted it. But the editor, he wasn't, he was a low, lower level editor, and the editor above him rejected it because he said it would be too hard for them to verify mm. uh, what I was, the things I was claiming. Of course, that's true. It'd be very difficult for Esquire to verify it, but that was just an excuse. They, it was too controversial for them, basically. Well, you, um, you observe some extraordinary things, and I think we should go into that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of interesting things, uh, because I was there for several weeks. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the first thing he did uh, when, when I met him um, was, was to, uh, you know, he was famous for being able to to bend metal, let's say. Yeah. Okay. So, so I held out um, one of my keys, and he said, "I had it in 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 my in the palm of my hand," and he 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 didn't touch it. He just he just waved his his hand over it, and immediately it started bending. And not only did it start bending, but it but even when he stopped waving his hand, it kept bending. Okay, and many other people have reported this kind of uh, metal behavior that once it starts bending, it doesn't necessarily stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and actually, it kept bending, and then it even broke. Mm -hmm. Okay, a key, uh, a, key. a key. Yeah, which, which if you had needed that key, that would have been a problem. That would have been a problem. Well, I had. I had acquired. I I knew that he he bent keys, so I had brought a bunch of keys with me uh -huh. for the purpose, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't the key that I absolutely needed, of course. But um, he he did the same thing to Ed May, our colleague Ed May, uh, probably a year or two later, and Ed gave him the key to his car, and when the key bent, Ed had to hire a locksmith to get into his own car. Yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't come as well prepared <laughs> for the eventuality of losing an an important key. Yeah. Uh, but he did. But he did a lot of a lot of other things. Uh, like uh, one of the things I wrote about was. Um, see, I was fascinated with the fact that that uh, in the in in the in. The Puharich book hadn't come out yet, mm -hmm. mind you. That came out in 74. So a lot right. of this stuff in the book I hadn't even heard about, um, mm -hmm. importantly. And, but one thing I did hear about was their Puharich and, and Uri's speculation that um, they were being uh, influenced by, by things going on in the future. There was a future influence on the past going on. Mm -hmm. And that's an idea that I was fascinated with, with from a physicist point of view. And, um, and so, um, so I wanted to see if Geller could, could make something go backwards in time. So I gave him, uh, I, I gave him, uh, a bean sprout, a bean sprout, a bean sprout um, 
and and said, you know, can you make this go back in time? <laughs> and he kind of waved his hand over it. You know, he, he was willing to take on anything, it seemed like, you know, uh, he waved his hands over it. And the bean sprout, you know, he opened his hand and there was uh, what had what what you would expect before the bean sprout. In other words, the bean itself unsprouted uh, the mung bean, I guess it's called. So th that was quite an unusual experiment. You surprised him. He had no idea that you were going to hand him a bean sprout. Right, and ask him to make time go backwards. Although he had been known for taking a bean sprout and holding it in the palm of his hand while people watched and the, the sprout would unfold from the seed. Oh, he had done that, yeah, but not the, not the backward thing. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So yeah. It, it had occurred to me that what if, because he was known for causing beans to sprout, that when you handed him the sprout, he happened to have a mung bean in his pocket uh, and, and substituted it. As I, it occurred to me that could have explained what it, you saw. Yeah, it's possible. It's it's in the realm of possibility. Be, you know, because you know he was uh, he was you know he 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 also had been caught. Uh, various by various people doing tricks, one yeah. might say. Yeah. yeah, so he was a mixed bag um, mm -hmm. in that sense. But you know, the first time um, that that I saw him on sort of his home territory, which which was Puharich's house in Ossining, New York, I went out there several times to visit him. The first time I went out there, um, I brought the guy in New York that I was staying with. Um, and um, so that you know, we'd have, you know, two sets of eyes on everything. Uh, and by the way, that's where I did the bean sprout thing mm -hmm. was, was uh, in Puharich's house. And, um, but, but the very first thing that happened was we were we, we got there not too not too long before dinner time and it was a big table and there were several guests and so on and uh, we were just standing at our at the table in front of um, in front of our seats and uh, as soon as as soon as uh, we were standing there um, some of the some of the forks started bending. We were just standing there, and we could see them bending, especially my fork in front of in, in front of me. And Geller was in the kitchen at the time, you know, helping to uh, to I guess bring out food and stuff, you know, um, for this big dinner. And uh, so that was pretty interesting. And you know, and my friend and I um, that I brought from New York. Uh, you know, both saw this happening, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so uh, that that was quite evidential to us. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, Puhard showed us other things like the uh, like the pictures of UFOs that um, Geller had taken of. Uh, Flying somewhere in Europe, in Europe, um, just taking taking pictures. It was a Polaroid Polaroid pictures, hmm. uh, and they, that he claimed that he just took out the window 
of uh, the plane they were in, mm-hmm. and there were there were UFOs in the very distinct UFOs in the in the pictures that 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 shown to me. And did he know that they were going to appear on the camera, or had no? He... Well, Geller's story about it is simply that that he had this Polaroid camera with him, uh, and he he claimed that the that the Polaroid camera levitated. And he decided to shoot out, shoot out the window and see what was there. And and you know how a Polaroid camera works. Yeah. You, you, you know, you have one shot at a time, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, each picture takes a few seconds to develop. Uh, to, you know, uh, and it automatically develops mm-hmm. uh, before your eyes, basically. Yep. Uh, and. Uh, there were UFOs in, in, in these Polaroid shots. Now, uh, as I recall, you also developed a number of ideas regarding uh, synchronicities and uh, this UFO connection. Uh, for example, uh, Geller referred to it, uh, if I remember correctly, as Hoover. Yeah, the synchronicity has not so much to do with Hoover, um, which reminds me, of course, of Jehovah, um, but... Um, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh. Um, but, uh, but actually, uh, the synchronicities had to do more with with spectra. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that see that happened um, in in uh, nineteen in nineteen seventy three. Mm-hmm. And I was back in Berkeley, of course, by the by the summer of 1973. Um, I started hearing um, stories from um, actually, actually stories from from Ray Stanford, mm. who I hadn't met yet, but um, a psychic, Ray Stanford. Ray Stanford, uh, a psychic, very interested in UFOs too, by the way. Yes. Uh, and uh, Alan Vaughn at that time was the articles editor for Psychic Magazine, and he he had done a lot of interviews, including interviewing all the people who who Jeffrey had brought to Berkeley for this big conference that he did mm-hmm. uh, in '73. Alan, Alan Vaughn became a good friend of ours. Yes, yes. Well, he also he also taught at the institute, for that yeah. matter. But psychic development uh, exercises uh, at the Institute. A, um, a course that we both took, as I recall. That's correct, yeah. yeah, And, and that's, how we, that's how we really got to know Alan Vaughn. And yeah. so by the seven, and, and so Alan Vaughn and I would call each other up to talk about the latest synchronicity kind of thing and uh, whatever interested us that had to do with psychic stuff. And so Alan Vaughn... Um, had interviewed um, Ray Stanford, uh, and I so I started hearing stories um, about that that he had brought back that that uh, Alan Vaughn had brought back from Texas. Uh, he was in uh, Ray Stanford was in Austin, Texas yep. at that time, and uh, Ray Stanford had uh, very strange stories. Uh, he claimed that. That his car had been teleported while he was in the process of driving to the airport to pick Geller up 
for to give a, to give a, a demonstration and talk uh, maybe on the campus I don't know somewhere somewhere in Austin and this, he claimed that this actually happened twice on two mm-hmm. two separate occasions and the car uh, had had suffered quite a bit of electrical damage uh, to the electrical system and this these are and moreover he attributed Ray Stanford attributed this to uh, agencies that he called Spectra, mm-hmm. and that he associated associated with hawk-like entities. Yes. Ray Stanford, and and uh, apparently, they these hawk-like entities had been showing up in, in kind of nightmare situations in his dreams. So it wasn't necessarily a pleasant experience for him. But this is all happening in the fall of 1973, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, in December of 1973, in mid-December, the January 1974 issue of Analog Magazine comes out. Now, I was an avid reader of Analog Magazine, which is a science fiction magazine Mm -hmm. time. And the cover of of uh, just shocked me because the cover of of this uh, January 1974 issue of Analog Magazine had a story called the Horus Aaron. Now mm-hmm. the, the Horus the Horus Hawk um, thing yeah. plays a role as it turns out in the Gal- in, in the Uri book, but the Uri book hadn't even shown up yet. Remember, mm-hmm. it was published in 1974 um, and. Anyway, the really shocking thing was that uh, the, the figure that, uh, taking up most of the most of this cover was a guy uh, in a a Horus Hawk type helmet, mm-hmm. and he has the eye of Horus on his on, on his lapel on, on his uniform, his white uniform, white and gold uniform, and and then he has a name tag, and the name tag is Stanford. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So I immediately, so I immediately called Alan Vaughn, uh, since of course he had been in contact with Ray Stanford, and I said, "Hey, you know, you should go out and check out the the latest issue of Analog, and uh, because the character is called Stanford and it's called the Horace Aaron." Yeah. So he, of course, immediately went out and got it, and he called me back immediately, and he said, "Hey, you know, the guy even looks like Stanford." Yeah, in, in Par- parenthetically, I think it would be useful to mention that Alan Vaughn himself had achieved quite a bit of fame uh, at that point in time because he, uh, in 1968, was uh, known he was in Germany at the time and he had seen an article similar to what you're talking about in a newspaper uh, and he put the columns together and it read across columns that there was going to be an assassination of Robert Kennedy. And he took that as a synchronistic warning. And uh, days before Kennedy was assassinated, he, he was trying to warn Kennedy about it. Yeah. based on Robert Kennedy you're talking about? Yeah, Robert Kennedy, based on just such a synchronicity. Yes, and and uh, nobody did anything with it. Um and so he started. He he actually started um, some organization to record such synchronicities, such synch- synchronistic warnings. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of like a super synchronicity going on 
uh, involving in, involving uh, as it turns out, you know, Geller and and uh, Ray Stanford and so on. But uh, I there were more shoes to drop uh, on on that whole story because because uh, when I was still in New York in 1973, um, I wanted. I wanted to see if if I could make contact with uh, the ETs that presumably Geller was in contact with. So I invited um, Geller to come to the uh, loft apartment uh, of my artist friend who I was staying with uh, in in uh, Greenwich Village, and um, and to entice him to come. I said that I would that I would be on LSD and he could. In, he could he could um, see me on LSD and I would try to contact the ETs in that state and my friend would remain straight of course and we could compare notes later and so on mm-hmm. and Puharich himself was very fascinated with psychedelics of course and he had famously written a book called uh, the magic mushroom uh, the sacred mushroom sacred actually. mushroom a very uh, just, interesting and important oh, book actually uh, the sacred mushroom, and that had to do with Amanita muscaria, I believe, and, and mm-hmm. other and other things that yeah. psychedelics. Um, and anyway, so Puharich encouraged him to follow through on this, and so so he showed up with his friend Shippy, uh, and uh, this this loft uh, you could only get to it by riding up on a very slow freight elevator, um, and as soon as uh, Geller and and his and and uh, Shippy showed up at the door of of this loft, um, my friend um, Richard Moore, uh, who was was an artist and a designer, he had he had designed all of his own flatware, all of his own silverware, and he had very very heavy forks, for instance, and he and he held a fork in one hand. Well, Ger- Geller hasn't even entered the room. He's in the doorway, okay? And he, and Richard says, you think you can bend this? And Geller says, where do you want it to bend? And he <laughs> he points to a place on the on the fork, a tine, and immediately it starts bending. Hmm. And then Richard says, well, can you make it bend somewhere else? So he points to another place and it bends there too. <laughs> All the time, Richard is holding it in one hand. Geller's not touching it. And um, and anyway, I'm starting to go up on LSD, but I'm not in full throes of it. But but Richard is quite straight um, mm-hmm. during this whole period. And anyway, so then we invite them in and Richard has ordered a, a huge... A Chinese dinner thing uh, that so they so we have dinner together this Chinese dinner together and and uh, after a while I I decide that it might be a good time to ask um, Geller if 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 uh, this would be a good time for me to see the, to get in to, to you know to see the entities the, mm. uh, and Geller says, well, look into my eyes. And I think, oh, well, you know, um, that's not a great idea because all I'll see is what I've heard about. Like uh, they show up in the form of red lights. OK, and I'll see red lights in his eyes and that won't mean anything. 
Well, that didn't happen. What happened when I looked into his eyes was that his his whole head became like a bird of prey. And I thought it looked like an eagle and uh, with with feathers going all the way down to his shoulders, you know, like he really did look like he was wearing um, an eagle costume, so to speak. And I said, I jumped back and I said, Uri, you look just like an eagle. And he got very excited. He and Shippy both got very excited, but they wouldn't you know, tell me anything about it. Mm. So this is in this is in the spring of 73, remember. Mm-hmm. And so so when this January issue of of uh, Analog magazine comes out with the Horace errand, then I think, oh, uh, there there's probably a connection between between my eagle experience and and the Horace Hawk idea. But I still didn't know that that Puharch and Geller thought that the uh, the ETs actually come in the form of peregrine falcons, which is the, which is the Horace image, of course. Yes. And and uh, I found that out only in the summer of 1974 when Puharch's book Uri came out, and then everything sort of, you know slid into place for me and and you know so this was a multi a multiple set of synchronicities going on and mm-hmm. moreover another interesting synchronistic aspect of the whole story is that alan vaughn got very interested in you know uh that that picture and the fact that it looked like ray stanford and had the name stanford and so on so so he actually wrote to the to the guy who painted the, that cover, a very famous cover painter for Analog Magazine and other magazines, a guy named Kelly Freeze. Right. F-E-A-S, okay? Mm-hmm. Very good painter. And so Alan Vaughn wrote to him, uh, you know, giving him some details about why he was interested in, in how he painted that painting. And Kelly Freeze wrote back and said... You know, it's interesting I that I never met Ray Stanford, but I did have a psychic reading done by Ray Stanford 10 years earlier. Uh-huh. And, and Ray Stanford had told him in his psychic reading that in a past lifetime, he had lived in ancient Egypt and had been some kind of illustrator. Hmm. So Kelly Freeze says in this letter to Alan Vaughn, he says, he says, well, you know, Every time I I do a cover that that has any inkling of Egyptian stuff, I just exaggerate it. And he he did in this case. He mm. this is set in a, in some futuristic L.A. and there's a there's a very a pyramidal huge pyramidal building and and by the way, there's also a, a red laser beam shooting off the top of this. Now this isn't in the story at all, and. And uh, the helmet is simply described in the story as being um, gold and white. Well, he turns it into a, a full hawk, you know, mm-hmm. falcon image um, and so on. Uh, and also it's interesting that Kelly Freeze, where does he live? He, he lives in Virginia Beach. Guess why? Because he's interested in the... Uh, the Ed- Edgar Casey. Edgar Casey materials. Uh, all of this is very interesting. Uh, this famous science fiction 
cover painter lives in, you know, Edgar Casey land, so to speak. Uh, well, it also suggests that the archetype associated with the uh, Egyptian god Horus, uh, who is, in effect, the reborn deity of Osiris. Osiris, his father, is chopped up into pieces, and uh, Isis, the wife of Osiris, gathers the pieces and uh, puts them together and makes love, and, and then Horus, uh, the hawk god, is born. Sort of like yes, Jesus of returning this, from the resurrection. Right. A lot of a lot of this ancient mythology, by the way, was very fascinating to Arthur Young, and he yeah. was one of the things that he talked about a lot, actually, about uh, about uh, th this particular uh, aspect of Egyptian lore. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very fascinated with Egyptian lore and other and, and other you know, European mythologies as well. Um, but especially Egyptian, I would say. Um, and uh, another interesting thing that Kelly Freeze said in that letter is that uh, he, he had not, he had never met Ray Stanford, didn't really know what he looked like, but he had, he had painted that particular painting from imagination and which is unusual for him, he said, because he usually paints, uh, if there's a figure, uh, which there usually, which there usually is in, in these covers, he paints from a, from a photograph of some kind. Mm -hmm. But in this case, he didn't paint from a photograph, he painted from imagination, which is another interesting aspect of the whole story, the synchronistic yeah. aspect. Uh, so he painted someone who actually looked like Ray Stanford, which shocked Alan Vaughn, um, he called me up immediately and says, hey, that guy looks like Ray Stanford. <laughs> Not only the name, but the face. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, the job of this guy in this Horus errand is to guide guide the soul um, of, of a dying person into, into the the baby of a of a baby that's just being born at that time that's mm -hmm. in some futuristic la in uh -huh. his story the story is all about so uh, reincarnation kind of yeah it's 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 a, it's a reincarnation story but it's it's a futuristic reincarnation in, in, in which it's scientifically aided reincarnation let's say yeah um and I recall yet another synchronicity uh, at the time involving the uh, hawk. And if I remember rightly, it was that in an issue of, I believe it was Science Magazine or Nature, uh, th that published some of the very first reports of research with Uri Geller, I think at SRI International, on the cover of that issue. They went back a hundred years to show the cover a hundred years ago, and it was a picture of a hawk that had been yeah, wired. Have that. <laughs> you have that cover. I have, well, I have the whole issue, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah that was, that was uh, an article in Nature written by by Russell Targ and Hal Putoff on um, the work with Uri Geller at SRI. And uh, it's the only time anything like that has been published in Nature, as far as I know. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it was very controversial, to say mm -hmm. the least, uh, yeah. in, in, the, uh, in, in, in the offices of Nature itself. In fact, the editor wrote a 
an editorial in which he was uh, taking some issue with it, although he was willing, he had to sign off on getting it published, but he, he wanted to record his own misgivings about this kind of research, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is a standard, of course, uh, in uh, the scientific community, uh, especially the very established scientific community, mm-hmm. such as Nature magazine, yeah. probably the most established um, journal of that kind, weekly journal. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I might mention to you, Saul Paul, parenthetically, that the American Psychologist, the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, just last month published a major article summarizing all the research in parapsychology and drawing very positive conclusions. So oh, I. Psychologists are traditionally the most hostile to parapsychology, and to me that's a, a major turning point. I think actually parapsychology has turned the corner, at least with regard to the psychologists. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Um, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So this, this stuff was very uh, exciting to say the least, in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, we, we had the idea that uh, that the 70s was going to be the, the breakthrough decade of, of parapsychology and, and other far-out things like UFOs and all the stuff that, that Arthur Young was interested in, basically. But it, it also brought to the fore the whole notion of the Jungian synchronicity and how important it was for understanding all of this. Yes, uh, the the term synchronicity was coined, I think, by um, by Carl Jung, um, in uh, actually in a book that has two parts: uh, the synchronicity part, and then there's a and then there's a second part by a famous physicist named um, Pauli, named Wolfgang Pauli, um, about Kepler. And and uh, his uh, interest in in uh, mythology and and so on. Kepler Kepler is kind of a a transitional figure between the the science between the medieval point of view and uh, and the modern point of view. Um, and but also it should be known that um, Pauli and and Jung were were very close uh, in many ways because, for one thing, Pauli was Pauli at that time was, of course, this is not mentioned in this book uh, in in that book, but it's very significant that Pauli was actually a, a patient of, uh, and and uh, it, it was revealed many many years later that the most interesting dreams. That um, Jung recorded were Pauli's dreams, hmm. um, which were related to physics. By the way, a lot of them, and they became very close friends. They both lived in Zurich, mm-hmm. uh, not too far from each other. There's a very interesting book about that uh, that's come out recently called the The Search for the Cosmic Number, oh. and and they were both fascinated with uh, the fine structure constant number 137, which Eddington. And Arthur Young were very interested in too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But they, 
they had no idea. Arthur Young had no idea that Polly and and um, I mean Young Arthur Young knew about this book, of course, and was very interested in, for that matter, in 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 Jungian psychology. In fact, he had gone. Arthur Young had gone through Jungian analysis, mm-hmm. um, which was one of the big influences on his. Uh, being interested in the, in the paranormal, as a matter of fact, uh, and that's a very interesting story. Is why Arthur Young um, got interested in in Jungian analysis, and what he told us. You might, you probably remember this story too. What he told us is that when he was still working at at um, at the Bell Helicopter Company, uh, that he 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 lost he lost the use. Of his arms, his arms just got uh, so weak he couldn't, he could hardly uh, lift them. And so he decided that he was going to go the medical route first. Uh, and if they couldn't uh, find out what was wrong and fix it, then he was going to go the the, the the psychology route and and do Jungian analysis. Well, the the medical professions professionals couldn't find out anything wrong um, with his uh, neurology that would create something like that. And by the way, he said that the, that the reason he thought it was happening was because there were, there were of course, crashes of the helicopters going on. Yeah. Uh, and he was very, very disturbed by this uh, at Bell. And of course, I think they lost a test pilot. They lost uh, at least one test pilot, and others were probably injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, uh, so so he thinks that that had an effect. But anyway, so he went through Jungian analysis, and he said it, it was largely dream analysis. So Arthur Young got really interested in dream analysis, and he said almost immediately when he got into Jungian analysis, you know, his arms came back to life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But he said it was so interesting that he continued doing it anyway for yeah. years. He was in Jungian analysis. And, until and, later, he eventually concluded that astrology was even more powerful than Jungian analysis. Well, of course, Jung himself was very interested in astrology and yeah. and, and writes about it in that synchronicity book, for, mm-hmm. for one thing. Um, and... Uh, I can t- I can tell you another interesting thing about that book, by the way, that and, and Alan Vaughn and so on. It's you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the you know um, Nick Herbert is um, a physicist uh, who was very active. He came to visit me at at the institute. He, well, he came. I first met him when he came to the institute for a, a little mini conference uh, in 1973 and we got to be good friends uh, and it, he was very active also in the, in the uh, physics uh, fundamental physics group um, on the on the Berkeley campus uh, that's written about in how the hippies save physics he's one of the m- most important people in that group um, and anyway so uh so he he had developed this uh this 
thing that he calls the metaphase typewriter. Which I remember that. You were involved in the, his very first experiment uh, at, um, at the UC Medical Center in right. San Francisco. Um, and um, you were there. I was there. A few other people were there. Um, and I won't go into the details of how the experiment was done, except that after that experiment, then we wanted to do another version of the experiment in which um, in which a psychic would try to influence um, the the output of this of this uh, metaphase typewriter, which was just a, a computer generated uh, gobbledygook coming, uh, which was triggered by um, atomic uh, um, Activity, random activity. Random activity, uh, yeah, radioactivity it's called, um, of, uh, of some element. Um, and so, so, in other words, totally, totally random, but, uh, but it would have imposed on its second-order English letter statistics to see if something readable would come out. As I recall, Nick Herbert determined uh, that the distribution of letters uh, from the English alphabet in words uh, was um, mappable according to something known as Poisson statistics. Yes, well, well, the thing is that this radioactivity uh, obeys Poisson statistics, and, and English letters also obey Poisson statistics. So that's why he could make a match between the two. Yeah. We won't go into Poisson statistics, but that's very important um, point you're making. Um, anyway, so we recruited Alan Vaughn as a psychic to try to influence um, the output. And we and the idea is that we would we would in some ran quasi random way pick pick t- uh, uh, target words to that he would try to make appear, uh, and anyway, the target the target words, uh, you know, didn't actually appear. But what did it? But what did appear was uh, was the phrase very clearly by Jung, okay, and Alan Vaughn seeing that happen says, "Where did that come from?" And at that moment. Uh, a technician, a, a woman, you know, dressed in a lab coat and everything, walks by and says, "Maybe from here." And she pulls out. She she pulls out the portable Jung from her lab coat pocket. <laughs> says, "Well, maybe from here." Talk about synchronicity. I mean, that's like really out of left field. That was the most interesting thing that happened in, in that in that particular experiment. Well, in, in the original experiment, if I remember rightly, it also cranked out a phrase, uh, at least phonetically, and an infinite time. Yes, 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 yes. I make a big deal of that. I made a big deal of it at the time. Uh, because here's why. Because when, when uh, see, the, the, the output was, was through a, a basically a teletype machine, mm-hmm. you know, um, and... and uh, so it has a paper feed thing and so on. And when the when the the letters started spewing out from you know just zap 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 you know one line after another random letters random letters 
the the paper wasn't wasn't advancing properly, and so you know, and so so Nick went over to the to the print, you know, to the teletype thing, and just pulled the paper straight so it would start advancing. But by that time, the the paper had been just not advancing, but just sort of skewing around. Uh, and so there were lines after lines being being uh, printed over each other. Okay, mm-hmm. but once he once he pulled the the, the the paper straight, then then we could we could see what what that was but the thing is that in the middle of these lines that were that were crossing each other at various angles because as i say the paper was skewing around in the machine right in the middle there was this phrase and an infinite time and that to us was a synchronicity because you see we had been joking a lot about what this experiment really amounted to and we said well it's like the monkeys on a typewriter thing, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and and which is you know an old an old uh, kind of illustration that's used in uh, statistics, I suppose. Um, that and, if if you have enough monkeys on typewriters, eventually they would type the complete works of Shakespeare in if they had infinite time. If they had infinite time, exactly, exactly. And so we were joking about that <laughs> leading up to this, and then. And an infinite time comes out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Food for know. thought. Let's talk about synchronicity, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so we, we were all in those years deeply engaged with the idea of synchronicities and paranormal phenomena and UFOs and psychokinesis. Yes. All, all wrapped up in one, <laughs> in one untidy bundle. They, well, they all seem to kind of uh, interpenetrate each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very, very exciting. And and at the same time, remember that we we were. I don't know if you were going to the uh, to the group up in uh, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Um, that Nick and I were going yeah, to. I went uh, occasionally. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Mm-hmm. So you so you saw that group in action. Oh yeah. Twice, yeah. And uh, that was very interesting because we were investigating the foundations of quantum mechanics through uh, the lens of uh, the Bell's theorem type experiments that John Clauser was doing there, and John Clauser was a very uh, important member of the group and attended regularly, uh, and um, there were other faculty members that were uh, very involved, like uh, Henry Stapp, uh, who was uh, really the theoretical expert on Bell's theorem and written many papers about it. Um, and he, he was interested in applying Bell's theorem to the understanding of consciousness, which he still is. He's mm-hmm. written a book about it and and many papers about it. Um, he just turned 90, I believe. He's still alive, yeah. Uh, there was some sort of big party for him, I think, when he turned 90. Either maybe they're going to do a festriff, or did. I don't know. He's still he's still there. He's still at Berkeley. He still goes to his office. He's you know he's emeritus, of course. Yeah. He had he had a really um, enviable position because he he 
was a full professor at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory and didn't have to didn't have to teach. He had mm-hmm. graduate students only uh, to, that he would uh, guide through their Ph.D. process. And and other than that, he could study anything he wanted. And he he chose to spend uh, most of his time on the Bell theorem related uh, aspect of quantum theory. Uh, he was also a very strong advocate of S-matrix theory, which was uh, a Berkeley specialty led by Jeffrey Chu, who was, mm-hmm. the, who was head of the theory group. And Jeffrey Chu attended these meetings, too, by the way. Um, and uh, S-matrix theory was a rival to the quark theory of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, particle physics, and um, but it didn't. The, the quark theory won out um, in that battle by 1973-74. But here's something that a lot of people don't realize, and that is that S-matrix theory led almost directly to string theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was, not, that was not wasted effort, it turned out, the S- S-matrix theory. Uh, and uh, people that really know the history of string theory know that string theory comes out of S-matrix theory. Yeah. Um, and uh, I won't go into that, because that's pretty... But it's it's yet another tough. example of, of the very heady times. You're, we're dealing with a, a time in which we're engaged in the frontiers of physics and philosophy and also paranormal research. Yeah, all, we... Yeah, we we assumed that all these things were... were uh, Intimately related, and we still do. Um, at least I still do, um, and you still do. Uh, I don't know if everybody in that group. Well, I don't know. Some of them are still around. Yeah. Some of them have moved on. Uh, it was a very interesting group. I met a lot of interesting people um, who came to the group. The thing about the group is that anybody could attend, mm-hmm. uh, and so you attended, and people, other psychologists, people in psychology attended, and people in biology. Biophysics and so on attended. Yep. Um, these things we assumed were all related, after all. Yep. So um, it was proper for them to attend. Uh, well, so Paul, we've been going for quite a while now. So this this may be a good t- uh, time to wrap it up for the time being. Sure, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more for you and I to talk oh, about. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's <laughs> a great deal more, though. The, the 70s, to me, it was a time of enormous uh, fertility. And I suppose I, I expected that, you know, the flowers that were going to come out of that fertile soil would grow into a huge forest almost immediately. And uh, I, I've been disappointed because I thought parapsychology would have become much more mainstream uh, over the last half century. But uh, I'm still optimistic it will. Yeah, especially as you mentioned this uh, this recent paper that. Yeah, so I want to thank you once again for being with me, Saul Paul. I look forward to more conversations with you, and uh, I would like to thank our viewers for uh, being with us as well. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. It was a lot of fun going way back there. Mm-hmm.